This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Attention BetMGM customers. Have a friend who loves sports as much as you do? Here's a chance for both of you to earn a $50 bonus when they sign up through BetMGM's Refer-A-Friend program. Just sign into your BetMGM account and click on the Refer-A-Friend program to send your friend a message inviting them to register a new account in the same state you use BetMGM in. Once your friend signs up and makes a deposit, they'll receive a $50 bonus. And once your friend places a bet with their bonus and the wager is settled, you'll receive a $50 bonus as well. Share the excitement and get a $50 bonus every time you refer a friend to BetMGM. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Ohio only. New and existing customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets. Bonus bets expire in 30 days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Hi folks, welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. Here today to talk about the 41 to 17 drubbing the Ravens took at the handles of the hand of, hands of the Bengals on Sunday. Here to talk about it with me is Kevin Ostraker of Locked On Ravens. Kevin, how you doing? Yeah, Ken, I'm doing well. I wish I was talking to you under a bit of better football circumstances, but you know the Ravens do head into their bye week at five and two. Some positive takeaways, but also a lot of things to work out. Yep. Uh, big loss to a divisional contender. Uh, we have to talk about the defense here first. And, and uh, it was tough to rewatch this and go over. It's always a little bit cathartic for me to go through some of the bad plays and understand what did these things have in common that made them so bad. But uh, uh, I'm going to run through some of the big pass plays they gave up real quick as, as an initial thing. What other takeaways did you have from the game? Yeah, you know, there, there are a couple that you can take away as positives. I mean, the Bengals were 4 of 13 on third down. The Ravens did a good job on third down. Now, the problem was they didn't get to a lot of third downs and they struggled to stop much of anything else. Uh, we'll talk about some individual player performances as well. I thought a couple of guys really stepped up, but really this was a 13 to 10 game at the half. The Ravens take the lead in the early third quarter and then it, it just goes downhill really fast. So this was a wake-up call, I think. They almost kind of needed it, in my opinion. And now that they have the bye week, they can kind of figure things out as they go. I think they should have had their wake-up call from all these close wins. So it should have been enough to tell them, hey, not everything is right here. 
Um, we need to really fix some things. And honestly, the breakdowns that occurred on the past play, very concerning, very concerning to have this against a divisional opponent, even more concerning to have it against opponents who are going to be around for a long time. So you're not getting rid of these guys. But I'm going to go very quickly through nine different pass plays, which went for 15 or more yards. Q1, 13, 19, that was a third and eight play. Um, we, we had a, a, a short pass to Samaje Perrin. It looked like uh, Stephens entered the backfield to try and blitz late because he saw that Perrin was blocking, and that did not happen. He slipped out of the backfield almost at exactly the same time, caught a short pass, and ran for, oh, how many yards was it? 23 yards, 4 plus 19. Yeah, it, it was you – know, it, it's those types of plays that are – almost game defining in a sense, because you kind of have a lot of different things to go on during them. But at the same time, you know, th- this wasn't just like a, okay, the Ravens are giving up one or two big plays. They gave up like, you know, seven, eight huge plays. And this was just one of, one of the many that this team really has to work through the film on. Right. We're going to try and, and pull together some of these at the end. So maybe it's better if I just run through these plays real quick, not ask you about each one, and then we'll look for common threads at the end. Second play came Q2, 640. The, that was the 55-yard pass to Ozama, uh, who, who had Humphrey beat, Humphrey trailing in coverage. Humphrey then missed the tackle, TD. Uh, next play, Q2, 032, second and 10 with ATS. Uh, they got ATS despite a six-man pass rush from the Ravens. That's very concerning. The Ravens had some problems getting home even with six. Uh, Burrow threw to Chase for 11 plus 15, 26 total, obviously. Uh, he outraced Humphrey and Clark from where he caught the ball between the left hash and the, and the left numbers all the way to the sideline on the right side. So uh, he picked up quite a lot of yak in doing so, uh, and, and that was another big play. Uh, Q3, 1320. So we're moving to the second half now. Burrow released quickly to chase for another 17-yard gain. That one was 11 plus 6. Humphrey was a little soft. There's a lot of space to the inside of the field. Of all the kind of things that typically happen, this is one of the ones that probably bothers me least of these nine plays. Q3, 11.58, second and 15, Burrow through before pressure could develop. So it's a ball-out quick play, as I call it, in that middle between having pressure and having a, a, a truly three-second clean pocket. Uh, the ball went to Chase in zone coverage. Uh, Averett was the closest, uh, 9 plus 12. One of the only big plays that Averett allowed the whole day. Now, Averett had a couple missed tackles, but in terms of his pass defense, he was very good on Higgins, and, uh, and that play went to Chase for 9 plus 12. Uh, 11, Q3, 11, 13, again with ample time and space, Burrow threw to, to Uzama for 32 yards, 16 plus 16 this uh, this time for a touchdown. Uh, Humphrey, Clark, and Houston all moved to cover Tyler Boyd on a very weird play we'll no doubt talk about. Uh, you know, If you're making notes on this, make sure we, we hit on these on the, on the trends here, uh, Kevin. On third and two with ATS was 602 left in the third. Uh, Chase was hit on that famous kind of a slant, might have been a crosser, whatever it was. It went for, it was caught at six yards from the line of scrimmage and taken 76 more yards, passed a couple of missed tackle attempts and one collision between Ravens defenders. Uh, initially in front of Humphrey, Elliott missed a big tackle at 10 yards. He was the one with the best chance. And then Chase spun past Humphrey and Clark at 14 for the TD. And I hate to say it, that looked a lot like Lamar Jackson in 2019 spinning by Nick Vigil. Did you get did you get any of that vibe, Kevin? You know, thinking about it, it kind of seems that way. It's 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 a terrible way to look at it because you know it's oh that's Lamar Jackson's thing, but I, I could see that comparison for sure. Yeah. So Q three three thirty seven OA uh, got a nice pressure on Riley Reef, uh, but Burrow was able to get the pass off to Boyd for twenty five yards, fifteen plus ten. Uh, he was wide open in zone. Queen was the closest. Uh, tough coverage, obviously, for anybody. They were finding spots in zone most of the day. Q3-0-17, the last of these with ample time and space. Again, Burrow through to chase for PR-27. That was 24 plus 3. Now, this is the play down the right sideline. Humphrey tried to punch the ball out at the end, did a good job. But we've seen this, the fruit punch for the first time this year, I believe. I don't think he's had another forced fumble. Ball landed in bounds, which is unusual. A lot of these sideline forced fumbles, they go out of bounds pretty quickly. Um, but then at, when he was out of bounds, Chase kicked the football to, to create a dead ball. And even though it, it was close, whether or not Clark touched the ball, and I think he probably touched the ball while out of bounds. Also, uh, the Ravens might have had Patrick Queen come up with a miraculous fumble recovery had that not been the case. Uh, so those are the nine plays. Um, a, a pretty terrible uh, set, of, uh, set of plays there. Give me some common thread thoughts of yours, Kevin. 
Yeah, well, I think for one, Ken, you have to look to the missed tackles in the the, the failed tackles that the Ravens had throughout this game. I mean, part of what has made this Ravens defense struggle is just how badly they have tackled this season. They came into this game tied for the league lead in missed tackles. And after this one, I'm sure they'll be at the top of the pack in the NFL. And, you know, on the CJ Uzoma touchdown, Deshaun Elliott is one-on-one with him. He whiffs and, and Uzoma walks into the end zone. The chase play where the defenders kind of get caught up in each other and chase spins out. It's those types of plays like the, the chase play, if you get him down at six yards, but then he has the extra 76 after the catch because you can't get him down. It's, it's just tackle the guy, get up, and, and play the next play. It's unfortunate. Also, another common thread I saw was just confusion, I think, just overall confusion. It seemed like, you know, especially on that Tyler Boyd play where four guys shade to his side of the field, that's a breakdown, and it leaves a guy wide open for a score. Yeah, so go back to the tackling for a second. First of all, yes, there, there are opportunities on all kinds of, of tackles on this play, run and pass, by the way. Averett missed a you know run tackle on Perrin's. 46-yard uh, run. Uh, he, he missed another tackle. It didn't matter much on a pass play, which only added it two extra yak. But you never really know how much yak you're going to get on a missed tackle in the secondary. And obviously, it can be 6 plus 76, as it was you know on Sunday. Or it can be you know 9 plus 2 or 9 plus 4 turns into a not-too-severe missed tackle situation. Uh, when, you, when you make missed tackles in the backfield and, and you're a bigger man, usually because it's often defensive lineman or you know somebody rushing in off the edge who's making that play, those tackles tend to retract the runner and create real problems for him that usually lead to another immediate follow-up tackle. Not always in sacks, but, but usually when there's a running back involved who's trying to get north and south. So um, yeah, missed tackles are a very significant part of this. And then uh, you know, I'll go on that the, the missed tackles also extended to the poor tackling or poor finishing on pass rush opportunities in this game. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And and this was like Justin Houston. And I will talk. We'll talk about him. He was um, he was great in this game. He, mm-hmm. he was doing a ton of good things against Jonah Williams. Jonah Williams just could not handle what Justin Houston was giving him. And we see the Ravens get pressure, but it's kind of been a recurring theme over the last couple of seasons. It feels like where they get the pressure, but they can't finish and they can't bring the quarterback down. And Joe Burrow, I think, has pretty sneaky mobility and escapability out of the pocket. And he was doing that. You know, he was shading to one side and just just making things happen. And Afe Owe missed on a sack opportunity. He got out and completed a big play there. So it, it, I agree. The missed tackles, it goes directly into this pass rushing opportunities where if you get Joe Burrow down on a couple of plays, I think Baltimore finished with just one sack in this one. They easily could have had four, five, six, and Houston would have gotten his 100th of his career. But unfortunately, it just didn't go that way, and the Ravens just could not bring down the quarterback. Yeah, definitely some significant opportunities to do that. Burrow, very good under pressure in this game, which is a you know another one of these common threads, is that he was good, frankly, every which way. When they had pressure, he was way, way above the normal. He had three for 7.5 yards per throw at pressure. When he had the ball out quickly, he was better than you'd normally be there. When he had ample time and space, he threw points for 16.4 yards per throw. So he picked the Ravens apart when they gave him exceptional time. Last week was just the opposite, but you know Herbert was under for each category similarly uh so so that was a problem but burrow really stood up very well to pressure in this game even though the, the, the ravens gave him some uh and they, they got to him 44 45 of the time they created pressure uh within three seconds uh burrow did not wilt under it and only led to one sack so you know it just didn't didn't translate into really good results obviously yeah, and I think one thing between Herbert and Burrow is the first time Burrow faced this defense in Week 5 of 2020, it was his probably his worst game as a pro. He was sacked seven times, did not stand up to the pressure well. You go back to Week 6 with Herbert, this was his first time facing this really complicated Ravens defense. And I think it's been a theme over the last, the last couple of seasons that rookies, second-year, third-year guys who are facing this defense for the first time have a lot of trouble processing, whereas Burrow, he had that film – you know, and he's a better quarterback, a much better quarterback against the Blitz this year in general. And I think it, it would have been a little crazy for Don Martin not to try to see, all right, is Joe Burrow still as good against our defense? Right. Or is he as bad against our defense as he was in week five? And the answer was no. And I think it was kind of almost like lack of adjustments in a way where there were the breakdowns, the missed tackles, the adjustments, and it all just kind of came into one and the second half happened. 
Yeah, it was it was certainly very a worse second half than it was in the first. That's for sure. I thought, um, you know, if you if you want to look at coverage, I think they blew opportunities a lot of different ways. There, they they blew man coverage opportunities. They blew zone coverage opportunities. So they lost guys in man coverage. They couldn't keep up in man coverage. They made poor decisions about man coverage. And now I'm talking specifically about Stevens entering the backfield instead of covering Perrine coming out. That was bad. So such a variety of things. And, you know, I look at this game in terms of coverage mistakes, and I think to 2019 against Arizona when they had a lot of mistakes with Tony Jefferson uh, in the defensive backfield then, uh, you know, just too many times where where the top receiver, in this case Fitzgerald, was just running free uh, somewhere in level two or three, and that it just can't happen. So Ozoma being unchecked in the middle of the field, you know, their guys so consistently finding space in zone coverage. Uh, and then, of course, this whole set of players – you know, basically traveling after after Boyd. I don't even know how that coverage. I, I I can't even put together whether that was man or zone. Either way, it was so overblown, meaning, meaning blown more than it could have reasonably be expected to be blown. That I can't I can't really come up with what it was. No, I mean, look, Tyler Boyd deserves attention, but I don't think he deserves four people yes. to, to his side of the field attention. And and it was a blown coverage. It was a mistake, and that's the cover. I think Justin Houston was in on that play, and he was dropping into that zone. And, you know, you have Humphrey going over there. No, it's just a blown coverage. But th- that was a key part to this game, which was the Ravens, especially in the second half, just I don't think we're communicating as well and had those breakdowns. And I know 2020, 2019, we've also had segments or just months or weeks where we've said the communication has not been what it should be. So it just goes back to, all right, how do they fix it and how do they move forward? Right. Clark is the guy there who's held this defense to get together since he got the green dot. And and there have been relatively few very serious coverage breakdowns. I'm not saying they haven't occasionally been beaten by good passers. That's certainly been the case some this year. But in terms of really blowing the coverage and just not being in the right place, the Ravens haven't had a game like this since that uh, game against Arizona. And, and this was just this was horrific. Uh, Clark is a guy on that play in particular. I can understand that they all were trying to make a play. I can understand they all didn't really think Houston had the chops to cover Boyd, and they're probably right. And and, and I can also understand the fact that one of them might have gone. But somebody's got to read what's happening there. And it's probably Clark being the player who – you know, he's the most experienced, most aware about the zone responsibilities there. And usually on the back end, that's got to say, okay, now I got to, I got to, even though I, I like that, as an opportunity there, even though I think we can shut Boyd down, I got to see what else is going on because that may be, you know, the decoy. Yeah, they, Chuck Clark, I agree. He, the green dot has been his and he's been the guy for them. And, you know, Marlon Humphrey, definitely not his best day as a pro, arguably maybe his worst. And so he was in on that play and on a couple of others that were huge play touchdowns. So, you know, they'll have to respond to this and figure out what they want to do in terms of communication. But I agree. It hasn't been like egregious. Like that was probably the more, one of the more egregious coverage breakdowns I've seen where four guys are covering one player and it leaves a guy open for a touchdown. (laughs) Right. But I I've been overall over the last couple of years, I think Clark is the guy. He's a very smart player. And so it's just a matter of them bouncing back. Yeah. I, I agree. I mean, in, in in a game like this, you look for correctable problems because, boy, if there's not an answer that you can correct, boy, is that a problem. And there are some things that are correctable. I think the Ravens can go get back to fundamentals and tackle a little better. they got some players who maybe can't do it, but they but they can as a team, they can tackle better. Um, some of that in the secondary, I mean, you know, a lot of people pointing problems at the linebackers. The linebackers haven't been the problem this last game or two. It's really been in the secondary, and, and, and specifically, it's Elliott had a very bad game here. Humphrey had a bad game. Averett missed a couple tackles, even though I thought he played well. Uh, you know, there were a number of missed tackles in the secondary. Those tend to be very costly. But I, I look at this game also and I say, this is a game where, you know, you got to tip your hat to your opponent to a certain degree. And, and Chase and Burrow and the rest of that receiving core being who they are, Higgins uh, and Boyd, I mean, that is a very dangerous group of offensive players and reminds me of some of the groups that surrounded Carson Palmer uh, for years. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I, want to give credit to the Bengals because this wasn't just a situation where the Ravens decided to not show up in the second half. I mean, that is what happened, but Mm -hmm. the Bengals are a good football team. And I know a lot of people looked to them at the beginning of the year and said, Oh, this is this is a two win, three win, four win team. And I, I personally thought it could have been, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever, because of their improved roster. But Cincinnati came to play on Sunday. This was a huge game for them. People looked to their schedule and they said, Oh, they haven't played anybody. They've they played a couple of opponents and they've gotten their wins against 
teams who aren't good this year. This was a huge statement win for them. And it just goes to show not only is Cincinnati going to be good for years to come, but the AFC North, you know, with Lamar Jackson in there and obviously Burrow and his weapons and Mayfield and and whether the Browns view him as their long-term guy, I have a feeling they do, but maybe they don't. Pittsburgh and Mike Tomlin, that's always a team you can't count out with that defense. So the AFC North has plenty of talent in it and it's going to stay that way for a long time. Lots of talent to be sure, and and uh, and the fact that Chase and Burrow are going to be opponents for a long time is certainly uh, one of the problems that cannot be corrected. So they'll move forward, and they'll uh, you know they'll do what they do from that. Let's move on here. I want to talk a little bit about packages and and uh, go through what was occurred on some of these. I think there were some interesting takeaways from the package choices the Ravens made, so I'll just go through this real quickly. The base defense, they only played it five times. Um, they did have a third and one stop. They had three defensive wins among the five. The other two plays, a 55-yard touchdown to Uzama and a 46-yard touchdown run by Perrin. So uh, five plays, 103 yards, didn't work out in total, but it was a Jekyll and Hyde kind of a situation with the base defense. Uh, I, I don't think the fact that they were in that package is the reason that they blew the coverage on Azama. Actually, that was the trailer, right? That 55-yard, it was a trailer by Humphrey. So, yeah. so it's, it's hard to really do that. I th- Humphrey was kind of a late to release to that coverage from near the line of scrimmage, is my recollection. Like, he was looking into the backfield, didn't cover Uzama immediately, and by the time he, he got to it, he was long gone and uh, beaten by a fair amount. Standard nickel, they played 27 times. The results for that, most normal. And and frankly, the Ravens didn't have a lot of normal or decent splits in this game, but 27 plays for 156 yards. Uh, they had two different nickel defenses they played, and this was kind of an interesting, I don't know if it's a twist, but it's an interesting deployment from Martindale. Is they use Tavon when they've got uh, you know standard 11 personnel. They use Jimmy Smith more when it's a more likely run situation, which can still be 11 or in 12 personnel. And the Ravens, uh, sorry, the Bengals played a fair amount of 12 uh, in this game. I uh, don't have an exact number on that, but the, but the uh, Jimmy Smith being in in 12 personnel was, was what they went with then. Uh, jumbo nickel. Uh, they used that seven times. They had two different versions of it. I'm not going to get into that. Look at the article. If you want to know seven plays, 71 yards. Like I said, there were a lot of really bad splits for the Ravens in this game. 10.1 yards per play. The rush dime, 12 plays. Uh, that's with the one with three outside linebackers, one defensive lineman. They kept Chris board in on the field for all of these plays. So he's really there passing down, Inside linebacker, he'd be a Mike special in this case with a Will linebacker who's a dime next to him. Uh, and they did not well on the, uh, sorry, they did okay on those plays, 12 plays for 74 yards. This was the version of the dime that kind of worked out, uh, 6.2 yards per play. The race car dime, on the other hand, which is the one I really love, that has four outside linebackers, gives you a better pass rush. They don't have an inside linebacker at all on the play because they usually include Campbell on the defensive line, play five wide in the front and six in the secondary directly behind it. Um, that went for three plays, 116 yards for 38.7 yards per play. So didn't work out this week. One and a half yards per play, I believe, last week for Herbert against the race car. I may have the wrong, I may have that wrong, but it's, called, it's, a, it's, a, it's a low number anyway last week for Herbert. Yeah, all these different packages. I mean, you know, looking at the actual splits, you have the standard nickel, which worked out with your you're around 5.8 yards per play. And then you have the rush dime packages with 6.2. Yeah, the race car was <laughs> not, this was not the week for, yeah. for the race car. But it's interesting because there are a couple of takeaways in terms of actual personnel with some of these packages. I know the inside linebackers have been a subject in recent weeks with binds and where they're playing board and everything. But I think overall that they found some success with some of these packages, but then there are just things that work one week and then just do not work at all the next. Yeah, uh, certainly. Uh, it's uh, Small sample sizes are a harsh mistress and uh, as well. They played one snap a quarter for the second straight week right before the half. So they had seven defensive backs on the field for that. And at the end of the game, they played jumbo. And it's almost like a punishment for the four defensive linemen all have to be on the field at the same time. The Bengals ran right into the teeth of it. Seven plays for minus one yards. And if you're, if you're looking for meaning out of that, I will have to disabuse you of that notion. I, I, I don't think there's a lot of value to be found in the in the fact that the Bengals gave up on their last two offensive drives and the Ravens. In fact, you know, you look at this and this game could have been worse is, is the truth of it. I mean, it could have been better if the Ravens had made some plays, but it could have been worse if the Bengals were still trying at the end. Yeah, I mean, for for a team that gained 520 total yards of offense, you're thinking, oh, how can it get worse than this? But yeah, if if the Bengals are trying to pile on the points and not get out of there at the end of the game, we could have seen maybe 600 the way the Ravens were playing at the end of that game. It was just that kind of day. 
Now, we could have, could have definitely seen some more run, more rush yards given away if they'd gotten it all creative with their thing. But why would they? Why would they want to open their playbook and, and do anything like that? Um, let's talk. Let's move on to the pass rush and, and talk a little bit about that. We're doing pretty well on time here, so I think we're going to have a little bit of time for the mailbag tonight, which I'm, I'm looking forward to because I know there's some pe- very, very happy people out there in terms of Ravens fans looking to comment positively on their team. Uh, the pass rush, uh, the deception was limited, but Wink said significant numbers in, in this game. And this is one of the, the, the things I think people will complain about Wink doing in this game. Uh, but he had 42% five plus by number. So that's a definition most people use in the blitz. I think it's more about deception. Uh, but on those plays, Burrow averaged 11.6 yards per play. Yeah, he he played really well against the blitz. I mean, again, going back to week five of 2020, he was not good at all, and it was all the pressure that the Ravens were giving him. But part of this also, I think, has to do with his escapability and the reason the Ravens just – they got some of the pressure, but they couldn't bring him down. And there were plays where they would get to him within, I don't know, 1.5, 2 seconds, maybe even less than that. And he would just roll out because they couldn't tackle him or they he just got away. So they were doing – especially in the first half. I think we saw it was affecting him a lot more in the first half. Then the second half came around, he adjusted – and the Ravens, you know, the pressure was there. But again, the, the finishing ability wasn't. Yeah, it, it uh, nothing really worked about numbers. There's no specific split that really looked more normal. And you'd say, oh, that's a good one. I, I wish they had done more of that. You know, they had one rush for no yards with seven plus seven rushing. They had two plays for no yards with three rushing. Don't think you can draw a lot of meaning out of samples that small. But uh, if you want to have at it. Um, the other thing that, that Martindale really cut down on this was off-ball blitzes. Now, they'd already had the lowest total of the Wink era per play which gets the Chargers at .07 per play. Three off-ball blitzes out of 41 last week. This week, even lower, two out of 38, .05 per play. Um, if you know A normal number for Wink, 10, 12, 14 could be even more than that, depending on the quarterback. We've seen, we've seen, I think we've seen upwards of twenty in a single game. If the quarterback is jittery and and Martindale sees that's working, he'll just send off ball blitzers play after play after play from safety, slot corner, inside linebacker, wherever that might be. But only two in this whole game. So basically, what pressure was coming at Burrow in terms of numbers? The Ravens declared it before the snap. So my off-ball blitzes say that player was at least a yard and a half off the line of scrimmage, or he was at least as far out as the slot corner. So we had cases where Burrow, with whatever count he was using, I know it was a silent count or it was some sort of quieter count because of a throat injury he had, he actually got the, got the slot corner a couple times to commit inside uh, and, and declare his blitz early, which I think might have helped him. Um, as well. So anyway, we weren't, weren't a lot of off-ball blitzes, uh, but but some of them were given away by the slot corner, and, the, and they really didn't come with the linebacker much. Queen only blitzed once the entire game, for example. Yeah, and I think with those off-ball blitzes, we've seen some very successful ones. I mean, Don Martindale's a genius at his blitz packages, but there are some plays where they'll send, you know, a slot corner and then a safety off of either edge and guys will just get washed out. You know, they'll be going, trying to go through the same gap and kind of get pushed out of the play. And then that leaves one-on-one opportunities down the field. It leaves guys crossing over the field. And for any secondary, it's really difficult, almost impossible to cover for four, five, six, seven seconds. So when they're not getting that pressure with their off-ball blitzes, I know there weren't a ton of them in this game, right? but I do think that that's something to keep in mind because I think Burrow did help himself and showed his growth, not only as a passer, but as just a football player in general by being able to diagnose those blitzes and, and help himself out too in those situations. Right. You, 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 you make a good point there because the off-ball blitzes are the way to get fast pressures. They're, 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 they're probably they're the wink special in terms of getting a, a pressure in two and a half seconds against a quarterback who might be trying to read hot, against a quarterback who's trying to get a short throw completed on third and six, third and four uh, to get a first down. Uh, you can really foil that quarterback with a, with a, with a fast off-ball blitz. Um, other, th- other things that take a little more time, a stunt takes more time to develop. Um, you know, if you, a delayed blitz takes more time to develop, but but those off-ball blitzes where they send them right away, they're generally the way to get home quick. The other way that the Ravens do it is by confusion with simulated pressures, and and those didn't really have a lot of effect in this game. They had five simulated pressures, um, and and honestly, there's no there's no split that really worked. 
but uh, one of the simulated pressures was the long pass. So, so that obviously didn't work out by any way that you'd measure it. Uh, they did try five stunts in the game. Uh, that was more. Now, when you have less blitzes, you expect more stunts because the players can call those on the field. But I think maybe because of the additional time necessary to get those going, um, that they didn't really have as many of those called amongst the linemen or from the sidelines either um, in terms of this. But anyway, not a big game, certainly, I would say, for deceptive elements from Wake. Yeah, it, it was definitely more standard, I would say. We we saw, you know, the simulations with, all right, we're going to send everybody to the line, and then you pick and see, all right, is everybody coming? Are they, were we dropping guys back? Mm-hmm. But it seemed like he was diagnosed. Burrow was diagnosing those a lot better than in his rookie season, and, like, that's expected. I mean, I expected him to grow and, and do all those things. But it, it was impressive to me to see just how improved he was against it because even playing in a Don Martindale defense, when you know everything, I mean, when Earl Thomas was in Baltimore, he said how difficult it was to learn it in general. So for an opposing quarterback, a young guy coming off of a huge surgery and his worst game against that team, I was impressed with how he performed. Yeah. I think you got to give him all the credit in terms of that. And maybe he'll be able to keep that up, but maybe it wouldn't. I wouldn't, if I'm a Bengals fan, I don't look at this game and say, this is a, this is a team that should beat anybody. I look at this as maybe this is a team that can beat anybody can, and can learn to believe they can beat everybody. But this is a team with a lot of holes still. They've, they've, the main thing that they've had is a very clean bill of health so far this season. That's the big thing. The Ravens haven't had that. You know, the Browns obviously haven't had that. And the Bengals are now poised to take the division because they're in pretty good shape health wise. But it doesn't I, I don't think they're yet at a point as a, as a team where they can say anything. But they're a very dangerous team uh, and not that they're, you know, a dominant team yet. There's certainly their offensive line, particularly left tackle, has has some very significant issues. Yeah. And, and I think you make a great point there, Ken, because if you go back to 2019 and look at the Ravens and their injuries there, they didn't. Really have a ton. Tavon Young missed that year. Mm-hmm. Pernell McPhee went out about seven, seven, eight, yeah, yeah. seven, eight weeks into the year. But other than that, they were relatively healthy until they got to the playoffs. And that's when Mark Ingram had his calf injury and, and Mark Andrews was limited himself. So that was an up and coming team. And then the, the Bengals this year kind of remind me of that a little bit. They're not the exact same team, obviously, but it's almost like, all right, they have a clean bill of health. Their schedule now looks like it's pretty decently easy at this point. And I think that they have the potential to do some damage this year and obviously in years and years beyond. But I agree. It, it's it's definitely not like the new norm that oh, every time the Ravens and Bengals play, they're going to beat them by all the points that they did this week. But mm-hmm. I do think that these are going to be competitive games in the days of Lamar Jackson beating this team by 30, 40 points are, are probably gone. Let's talk about some of the individual Ravens defenders. And you're the guest. Pick the first guy you want to talk about. I've got a few names. I definitely want to get in on this one. Yeah, well, I think we can't not talk about this game and not talk about Anthony Averett. You know, Averett was a player who, when you have Marlon Humphrey on your team, you want to throw at the other guy, and Averett right now is the other guy. Now, Humphrey ended up not having a good game anyway, but Mm -hmm. in the first quarter, it was T. Higgins, T. Higgins, T. Higgins, T. Higgins, and Anthony Averett played relatively well in that, I mean, really well in that first quarter. He did have a couple of of bad plays. You know, we mentioned the missed tackles earlier and and a couple of blown coverages. Uh, I think he had... I think he had a pass interference as well. I can't remember if that was accepted or not, but it was, it was declined. So the so it's kind of included in the passing yards is the way to look at that. Yeah. So I thought that he, all things considered, I mean, look, anything could be better than what happened in Indianapolis in, in week mm-hmm. five. But I think that he stepped up to the plate and outside of those couple of plays, I mean, he was an overall bright spot on this defense room. Yeah, played very well, in my opinion. Um, I saw PFF's grade with him, and it's not kind. PFF is a way of overweighting missed tackles that I don't like, so they've got him for missing the tackle on the 46-yard touchdown run was bad, but it was also was a good stiff arm by the running back. I don't really blame him the way I blame some of the other missed tackling in this game, like the like the missed tackle by Elliott that led to the 6-plus 76. Uh, Averett was terrific in coverage, and they threw – 15 times to T Higgins for 62 yards. Well, that is not going to make T Higgins any money. Believe me, that actually dropped his career yards per target by four tenths of a yards from 8.1 to 7.7. This is a second year in the league, but he's been in the league, you know, what, 22, 23 games now. And, uh, you know, that's a very significant hit to that. He, 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 they threw for 4.1 yards. That's not worth the risk. 
That's uh, that is not a risk adjusted return that is acceptable for passing the football in the National Football League. So it's uh, <laughs> Averett did a fine job on that. And that was pretty much all him. He did give up one good play to Chase. That was that nine plus 12 zone play. So that was unfortunate. Um, you know, he, he missed a missed a couple tackles. That was bad. He had the pass interference penalty. Uh, that was included in the statistics because that was actually one of the balls Higgins caught. So, you know, basically on most of the receptions by Higgins, he made immediate tackles. I mean, Higgins had almost no yak for the game. I want to say he might have had um, 12 yak maybe for the game, something like that. But I look all the way down the streets. There's a 5 plus 0, a 4 plus 5, a 7 plus 0, a 7 plus 4, a 9 plus 2. I mean, you, it's, these are not big yak plays that, that, he's, that he's coming up with. That's that second number with the plus. Uh, so I, I thought excellent game from from Aver. He probably made himself some money this game, and we'll see how that goes if if the Ravens are able to resign him. He's obviously a guy not completely wart free. Uh, has some had some issues with Wiggle as you mentioned against Indianapolis, but a guy I think the Ravens really need to consider whether he's part of the long term future or not. Yeah, and, and that just goes, I mean, this 2018 draft class with Lamar Jackson, Mark Andrews, Averett, Elliott, B- Bradley Bozeman, so many decisions they have to make. They've made their line Andrews. I don't think Lamar Jackson's going anywhere. It might come down if the money doesn't let them keep everybody, which I don't know if it will or not, to Elliott and Averett. And at that point, you have to wonder what happens with Marcus Peters if they re-sign Averett to a big money deal. Can they have three corners with big money contracts on there? I know that Peters, I think they can save some money if they cut him. So we'll see what happens there. But I think Averett definitely did make himself some money in this game and, and throughout this whole year as well. Yeah, the Ravens are giving very strong indications with Peters that he won't be here next year. And, and the big one is that they are completely desperate for cap. And about the only source they have of any meaningful amount of cap is to extend uh, or completely force forward the bonus for uh, Peters. And they haven't done it yet. So that's telling you right there that if they won't do it under these most desperate of circumstances, and maybe they still could do it with a trade coming up, and and maybe they could even still cut him next year. Um, you know, then then they do that. They could also extend him and and you know move the, that money over more years. But uh, but they're not really looking to do. I don't think either of those things. I think frankly, it's very likely, as much as I love him, that Marcus Peters has played his last game as a Raven. Yeah, and, and that would be a sad situation for sure. But, you know, you have to, you know, weigh, you know, this is a business, unfortunately. You can't keep everybody, so you got to make those tough decisions. And maybe Peters is one of those tough ones. You know, it, it, we'll, we'll see. You know, as, as much as that sucks, it sucks a lot worse to have the Orioles situation where it, the league is not a, you know, a roller coaster parity league where the draft and the salary cap don't continually correct teams to be competitive. Uh, that, that, that league is so badly run and so boring and so dominated by large market teams. I, I can't stand it anymore. I grew up a big baseball fan, but it's, it's a nightmare now uh, to have the situation they now have with the, with the dominance of money and, and of uh, local cable rights. Yeah. I mean, you see, you see the Dodgers every year. It's the Yankees. It's the Red Sox. It's those big market teams where players will flock to, where they have the big prospects and that's where the international guys sign. And so with the NFL, you know, you do have the correctability, as you mentioned, which I do like a lot more. Yeah. All right. I, I'm going to move on to another point. It's my turn, right? Because your favorite was technically yours. Justin Houston is my guy. I thought uh, he was outstanding in the game. I developed a lot of pressure, most of it against Jonah Williams, as we kind of mentioned. Really, he used Williams more or less like a sock puppet in this game. Williams was taking a step back, was adjusting wrong to whatever he did first, basically kind of like Averett against the Colts. Whatever the Colts receivers were 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 uh, selling, he was buying. That was pretty much Jonah Williams against against uh, 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 Houston, and Houston uh, you know, had some interesting plays because Jonah Williams made a very bad mistake to block outside against the slot receiver. I don't know if you caught that. That was a second play of the game, maybe, and he got a free run for a quarterback hit on that play. But both he and Mixon. Mixon being correct about the matter, uh, jumped outside to block that that uh, that slot corner, and uh, Houston somehow gets a free run at the quarterback. That's very bad left tackle play, by the way. Uh, but all kinds of other plays, he really had his way with him in terms of, of making a secondary move to beat him, uh, beating him with speed, whatever it would be. Four quarterback hits in the game, two pressures. Uh, looked really good in this one, and, and frankly, uh, one of the bright spots so far, the pass rush of Justin Houston, his ability to continue it, provide an opposite bookend for uh, whether it's Oway or Bowser, uh, very positive. Yeah, and this is exactly why the Ravens brought him in, why I was talking about him for two years as a great fit on the Ravens. And and it got, you go to the Ravens offense, and you mentioned that free run at the quarterback. I think 
on the offensive side of the ball, who was it? Le'Veon Bell missed a blitz pickup, and that guy had a free run at Lamar Jackson. So, you know, those things happen, but Houston's been a very big force so far this year, and and I think it's helped Adafi Owe out a lot, Tyus Bowser a lot, not just on the field, but his veteran leadership, his ability to teach. You know, they call him Yoda yeah. in that locker room, and I think it, it shows based off what he's done so far. So I think it's really important for him to continue to grow and continue to do his thing in, in a Ravens uniform as he learns the defense. Your turn again. So for me, you know, as I mentioned, I've been interested in the linebacker play. So I'm going to go with Josh Bynes. I've been impressed with Josh Bynes over these last couple of weeks, Um, starting with Los Angeles. Just looked like he was flying. He had that one play against Los Angeles where he flew over. And same thing against Cincinnati on that quarterback sneak. He diagnosed it. He flew over the top and Mm -hmm. ended up doing a lot of good things in this game. You know, if you want just general overall box score stats, he had – a total of six tackles, but overall, he, he just he looks. I don't know. He looks faster than he did during his second stint in Baltimore. And I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. But I think for this time, it's good. But he, he's a veteran. He understands the defense. You know, this is his third stint in Baltimore, and I think the veteran leadership is huge for guys like Patrick Queen. Yeah, you mentioned the diagnosed QB sneak, which was good. Um, his play speed is just faster than all the rest of them. Even Queen is now playing much better on the at, at the will spot. Uh, it, it, it seems like it's. You know, the, the, the less he has to worry, the more he can trail the play by a gap, the more fast he feels able to play. And I, I think having that on-field handholding from Bynes as opposed to being on the field with another green leaf in terms of Harrison is really helping him out in terms of his ability to uh, you know, know where to go, know how to move. Uh, Bynes, just a terrific game in this one in terms of, of his plays being pretty much all defensive wins. He had five, uh, six tackles, five of which were defensive wins. Uh, you mentioned the diagnosed sneak. He delivered a pressure. I mean, he's just, he's very sharp. And this is a guy who's a 481-40 guy who just has a much faster play speed than these guys who are seemingly 20 years younger. But we know they're only 10 years younger. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's just bad. Yeah. No, it, it's true. And, and I think, you know, when you talk about Queen and his improved play with a veteran next to him, it, it takes me back to when C.J. Mosley left and they gave the keys to Patrick Owasso. Exactly. And, you know, Owasso night and day. It was night and day what he looked like with Mosley and without Mosley. And they tried Owasso and Kenny Young together. Obviously, that did not work out. Kenny Young just got traded. But, you know, same thing where with Queen and Harrison, you're expecting those two to grow together, where in turn – they just they have trouble diagnosing. They just don't have that experience. So having a veteran next to them has really, really helped. And I've been very, very impressed with Bynes. Yeah, very, very good last couple of weeks from Queen, by the way. Now, Queen last week, he okay, he was involved, I will say, in a 12-men on the field incident. But honestly, it could have been Chris Board. The Ravens are making a three-for-three three substitution. I think they called it off because the Chargers had no huddle. But Board had already run on the field, so somebody had to be sent off. So either and you, none of this is available in the all twenty-two or the camera. So I, you have to really just kind of think about what had to happen there. But either Clark or Bynes sent Queen off. He was kind of confused, didn't didn't run initially. Then he ran very hard, but he didn't get off in time. So it was one of those plays. I don't think it was entirely his fault. He otherwise played well in that game. And he played very well in this game in terms of running the ball, making making good hard tackles. Didn't make a lot of them in this game because there weren't a well, there weren't that many running plays. Period to be made, but um, but he he uh, he made some good plays in the run game, and I I think he's poised to do much better in this will role. And I can easily see a productive platoon again developing. And maybe the Ravens haven't found their Mike. And maybe neither of these guys is the guy Harrison or Queen, uh, and they have to redraft in the position, which would be that would be a tough redraw for me at this point to spend draft capital on. Yeah, there are a couple of nice linebackers or inside ones in this draft, but I agree where, you know, they double down on receiver two of the last three years in the first round to do the same thing at inside linebacker and not have that capital be spent on the offensive line, for example, or on the defensive line. It can take a toll on that position. And I think with Queen also, something to to keep in mind is that for him in particular, you know, a lot of people had given up on him after the the first whatever it was, four or five weeks. And I do think that this Ravens team is missing Marcus Peters, but they're also missing LJ Fort. And yep. what Fort brings to this team, again, the veteran presence, someone who is a very solid overall linebacker. Good coverage linebacker. But yeah, Bynes wasn't even, you know, Bynes wasn't on this team. He was in Carolina during the preseason. So there wasn't even 
an opportunity for them to get him. He was cut by Carolina and that's how they got on their practice squad. So I think that was a blessing in disguise for this team. And that now that the blessing is in full sh- or the, it's getting shown right now because Bynes is playing great football. Yeah. Really paying off. So let's see, you brought up Josh Bynes. Let me see. Who do I want to talk about here? How about uh, Justin Matabike? Not a perfect game or anything from Matabike. He certainly he didn't develop any pressure as I scored it, but he did have a couple of nice run plays, including a very nice move into the backfield, almost like a pressure event in terms of his ability to penetrate into the backfield, really displayed his quickness. You know, a lot of the worries about Matabike come from his size, that he's not quite big enough as an undersized three tech. Uh, to to really do what he needs to do. But uh, he's proven most of the time his quickness can overcome that size. And I thought this was a game where at least he made a couple nice run stops. Uh, not a perfect game and very few perfect games on this Ravens defense here. But uh, uh, I liked what I saw from him for a couple of plays. Yeah, I agree. It wasn't anything spectacular, but he did have a couple of nice plays. I agree with you, Ken. And This is a player who overall hasn't really made a ton of impact this year. I know he missed the game earlier in the year. He he was my pick for breakout of the year for this Ravens team. And, you know, he just hasn't done it so far. It's been a a little bit of a disappointment, I'd say, so far, just because I haven't seen the exact leap I was expecting. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of football left. And there are the flashes that he shows that that just say, oh, my God, this guy's going to be so good. But so far, they just haven't. It's been too few and far in between. Yeah, they need one-on-one pass rush wins out of him. That's that's really what they need. But uh, anyway, we've seen fewer of those, I think, than than we expected. Somebody, some national pundit, had him as a defensive player of the year dark horse, which is interesting. <laughs> it's uh, you know you really have to look hard for okay, who's on a good team and who's a, like a young player. I think you could find a few indicators if you wanted to do that that would let Matt BK be the guy. But it's still kind of a stretch right, from my point of view. Yeah, well, so, some of the one quick thing is that I think part of that was also because I expected the role of Clay's Campbell to be kind of scaled back, but in reality, he's played. Scaled I think, <laughs> yeah, I think it's one of he's the highest snapped player on the defensive line, and it's yeah, mm-hmm. he's he's played I think like at least fifty percent of snaps in every single game this year. Uh, I would not be surprised. I'll give you the season total as a percentage of snaps, but he's played yeah seventy three point two percent of the snaps so far through uh, through seven games. That's uh, Way more than I thought he would. Yeah, Campbell came, you know, his last five years before he came to Baltimore, he's between 77 and 80 every single year. So other mm-hmm. teams have, have overused him to a good degree as well. All right, we've got one more player to, to go for, maybe two, but go ahead and give us your next if you've got another you want to talk about. Um, You know, we've talked about some good performers. I think talking about Marlon Humphrey is important in this one because it was not a good game from Humphrey, especially in the second half. And he, he kind of owned up to it during his post game presser. He said, look, it was my job to be on the top guy. And I, I failed that. I, I think Humphrey got into a little bit of a funk, honestly, like he just, he wasn't playing up to his potential and, and what we know he can do. He was getting behind on plays as we've talked about kind of, I think almost getting down on himself. It was almost like what we saw out of Averett in week five, where it's like every throw that goes to him, you think, Oh man, what is going to happen this time? Mm-hmm. So I think for like, this is not like the Marlon Humphrey that is Marlon Humphrey. We know who he is and what player he is, but look, guys have bad games. I think people are kind of down on Humphrey right now, but it's just, it's, it's just one game. Jamar Chase kind of took this team by storm. And even though they tried to stop him, you know, they just couldn't do it. And that's a credit to Chase. It's a credit to the Cincinnati offense. But I think Humphrey was, was a player who did not have a good game in this one. And while it's good to talk about the good ones, I mean, you know, it's also important to talk about the players who didn't play well. Yeah. I think I got a couple things to say about Humphrey in the first game. The first, one of the things is Humphrey more than any other Raven emotes on the field to other defenders, which means he shows his dislike for things they've done very actively. A few weeks ago, he, he, you know, basically put his arms out in the air and kind of like a pincer motion and said to queen, basically you got to wrap up you know, on a missed tackle. And he's, he did that a number of times last year in the Kansas City game, a number of times, probably twice, um, where he said something to Queen after a play about coverage responsibilities. He got upset with uh, who was the player. It was, an, it was a linebacker. It was not Harrison. It's board um, for not having proper inside leverage on the touchdown to Hunt that retied the game at Cleveland before the before the Ravens drove down for the winning field goal. So number of times on the field, he's very common to emote. But, you know, the good side of that is, and you better own up to it, when you have a really bad game uh, in terms of giving up a lot of plays, you say, you know, I, we've got to improve. He needs to take that onto the field with him. 
being a leader by example, which he usually is on the practice field, by the way. Nobody plays harder and faster in camp than Marlon Humphrey, if you've ever watched the guy. He's running in a way I would tell him, hey, slow down, kid. This is just this is this is too fast. You're this is this is not even preseason. We, there's not even a live fire going on here. You know, these are seven on seven drills, or no, they're probably eleven <laughs> on eleven drills they're 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 playing and, and he just he plays way too fast. The other thing is even in a terrible game for Humphrey, still saw a couple very Humphrey-esque plays, namely the peanut punch out at the uh, or the fruit punch out fruit punch uh, shot on the sideline on Chase. That was a nice play. And then he he realized he had bracket coverage. He went up high for the ball underneath on Chase, pulled down a ball that that gave the Ravens yet another chance to maybe get back into the game uh, in that fourth quarter. Yeah, and I think that was probably like the the last chance for the yeah. Ravens to kind of go down because that was they were gifted that football Burrow. Did not make a good throw. You know, Burrow should not have made that throw. Mm-hmm. And they, they had that opportunity. The offense was just off for most of the day. And the defense, you know, with them playing as poorly as they did in the second half was a combination that, you know, the team just couldn't come back from, unfortunately. But I agree. You know, the fact that Humphrey played badly, but you could still take away a couple of really nice positives just goes to show the player he is. Yeah. All right. We're going to do something here. We're going to do – I don't do MVPs when there's a loss like this. It's just that <laughs> somehow does not feel right. But we're going to go to the mailbag. If you would go out to uh, your tweet deck or Twitter and look at pound sign, hashtag film study mailbag, where these are. And there will be a few questions. If you see something about the defense, we'll kind of alternate bringing them up if you would. And we'll do this. Normally this would be Josh's responsibilities, but uh, uh, he has some uh, work issues he's got to deal with. Uh, you can work from the top. I'm going to kind of work from the bottom. If you see one before I do, go ahead, and it should be something about the defense. Um, I see one about the trade deadline that, that we could talk about. Um, he, this one is, let's see, do you think it's worth making a trade before the deadline or just bite the bullet and go with what we have at this point? feels like there are just too many holes right now and not sure if spending draft capital would be worth it when there are so many problems on both sides of the ball. Yeah, so, yeah. I, go ahead. Go ahead first. Yeah, yeah. This one for me, I I think the Ravens should try to make a trade. The issue is they don't have a ton of cap space to make a huge addition right now. I think when you look at where the Ravens need a player, it's a tackle with Patrick McCarry having his high ankle sprain, and he's probably going to be out for at least the next month. They're working with Tyree Phillips over there, and just he played great at guard in Week One. He did not play great against Cincinnati. I think they, you know, there are a couple of players whose names come up. Morgan Moses is one. The Seahawks just cut a tackle, actually, so maybe they go after him in free agency instead of trying to give up draft capital. But, you know, in terms of biting the bullet, I know people have asked for a linebacker. I think that they're fine with what they have right now. They don't need to make a huge addition there. I think Bynes is okay, and that's fine for them. A running back as well, maybe, you know, Marlon Mack or I know James Robinson. But at the same time, at the same time, Part of that run game comes with the offensive line. All right. Give me a lot to respond to there. So let's let's start at um, offensive tackle. I think that's the most likely place they'll, they, they'd make a move. It's all those, also the most difficult to make a move because very few teams have anything to trade. There are a few sellers in the league. If they're looking to sell the right kind of contract, a guy who's headed for free agency or whatever, there might be a deal be, to be made. But here's the problem. The Ravens have almost no cap space, so it can't be a high-value guy. If it was a high-value guy, it's got to be a guy – who basically the other team kind of doesn't want anymore, but they're willing to eat the rest of this year's contract right now, pay it out as bonus, leave the Ravens only with the um, salary that's left on this year's, uh, sorry, the vet min salary that's left of, on this year's deal. And that would allow them to pick up a player like that. But of course, to do that, you have to find a team willing to trade it. And a team like that is going to be going to want draft capital in exchange. So the Ravens got to trade too much to get that player. When I say too much, much more than they would normally trade. It's not going to be a Marcus Peters type fourth round pick and our fifth round pick and yada, yada. It's, it's going to be higher than that. And, uh, and that's, that's where I just don't, I think the Ravens will balk at this. I think honestly, they'll look at this roster and, and, you know, you mentioned three positions, nothing's going to be done at running back. I mean, if, if, if a running back happens to fall into their hands, great. If Nate McCrary is the guy, great. They want to give him a chance. If these all, all older guys, none of them work out. They could discard them all and look at the refuse pile again and find somebody. But it's it's not going to be anybody that is is any good. It's going to be a younger player who's on somebody else's scrap heap currently for some reason, probably fumbling, that they are willing to take a chance on. And I just I don't see them making another move at running back. I think they've they've gone to the bottom of that well as it is. Yeah, and even 
if they get a player, if they want to rent out like a younger player, as you mentioned, maybe they could do it. But I think they've explored their options. They've found guys they're comfortable with. And if they bring in somebody, it's, it's that whole process again of getting them up to speed on the offense, figuring out the mesh point with Lamar Jackson. And yep. I just don't know if they want to go through that again. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point is that that takes time. COVID onboarding takes time. You know, me- mesh point learning takes time for a running back. I mean, all of these things, system learning takes time. Left tackle is a position where it's more uniform, probably across the league, what you do. And the Ravens can do more to help that player as they have tried to do frantically for Villanueva and for McCary. McCary played pretty well. But he's had some help. Villanueva has played pretty poorly and had a lot of help. And frankly, that's a, that's a dangerous combination there. And, and uh, you know, they still need to do more to, to, to try and uh, shut down the left side, keep that uh, set properly. So I, I, I just – I don't know who they could really get that would completely change their fortunes. I have a feeling whoever they picked up at tackle would be somewhat of a disappointment. Um, price – price, I don't have that right – sharp. Um, did not look so great at the end of this last game. Did give up a pressure as I scored it. Um, and yet he might be the best answer. Brandon Knight, very disappointing that he didn't show up. Uh, I hope the Ravens really stick it to Brandon Knight, by the way, in terms of making sure he's not able to play somewhere else in the National Football League easily. Or that they release him when it's when it's a, a, a difficult time for him because they've he is certainly... It's, it's like leaving at, at year end for an accounting practice is that, is that, you know, basically all of these year end reports have to be done. And this person quits on December 31st and, you know, it's just screw you. <laughs> you're just, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to have somebody do that to you and, and, and not be a little bit vindictive about it. I don't think. No. And, and the, the night thing kind of, you know, it's a difficult situation because the Ravens thought they had a really nice backup who could fill in when needed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the Cowboys wanted him back on their practice squad, the, you know, the report said, and the Ravens end up claiming him. And it is unfortunate. You know, I agree that now with McCurry out, they could they need a guy like a Brandon Knight on their team when instead they're working with Phillips and, and Andre Smith and, and Sharp and whoever. So I think maybe they go after potentially the Seahawks tackle that just got released. Is that better than what they have right now? I mean, honestly, maybe it's a, there's a good chance it could be. So if they can get him on a minimum deal or bring him in for cheap, maybe that's their best option instead of giving up capital to acquire somebody who could be at that same level. Right. I, I, I mean, the other part of this question was, does this team just have too many holes to be a contender? And honestly, if you ask me after last week, I might have said, you know what? They got Lamar Jackson. Let's see where we can go with this thing. And you asked me this week, and they just lost a game to the Bengals in embarrassing fashion at home. And even though the Bengals are an up-and-coming team, they're also the divisional rivalry who now has the chokehold on the division. And you've got to be concerned that the Ravens are not going to get a home playoff game out of this if they make it. So do you trade a lot of draft capital to, to just go for a, you know, a single or two road playoff games, you know, hoping to get through that somehow and, and make a run the way some past Ravens teams have done? But uh, it, it just seems like a long shot relative to other hopes. Yeah, I think so many people were excited as well for this trade deadline before the year started, before the injuries, because the Ravens have, what is it, like seven picks in the first like top 110 or something. I don't think that's exactly right, but they have a lot of early picks this year. Right. So if they were at six and one or if they were at five and two with their injuries and they were looking good, and they didn't have all these holes. People, I think, were excited about, hey, maybe they could go out and get a star at one of those final holes and really complete this team. But now there's, as we talked about, the offensive line and the linebackers and the right. secondary and maybe a running back. So it's just like, do they want to, is, is the question said, bite the bullet and just say we're going to work with what we have? Or do they really want to go all in on this year when they're missing so many players? They have a raft of free agents leaving at the end of this year. And one thing that people do and looking at all the Ravens draft picks are saying, oh, boy, well, we can trade up now this year. We might might have a good record, but we can use a couple. We can use a three and a two and we can move up and get a one. And, you know, no, they can't do that. They need every one of those players. They literally need every one of those players. They probably need to to trade down just to fill out the roster for next year with the kind of situation they're in. And yes, they will sign some vet minimum free agents to fill some of those spots. But, you know, they, they don't want to basically toss all their eggs into one basket of draft capital that they roll the dice on one player. It's just it does not make sense. It makes sense to make a number of good picks the best you can in terms of value and hopefully get some some valuable players like they did in 2018 to fill multiple needs. 
Yeah, and I think that that approach was definitely more viable like in 2019 and even this past year where you could say, all right, this team has so much depth that there's no way 10 draft picks are making this roster. Mm -hmm. There's no way nine draft picks are making this roster. When now you look, and this is the 2018 free agency draft class year where it's Averitt and Elliott and and Bozeman and and whoever. So now they have those guys getting money contracts, and all of a sudden you have even more holes on your roster. Right. I I think they they are additionally very – hesitant to trade draft capital in this next draft because they know how good it's likely to be. It's kind of a draft and a half after a COVID year. A lot of guys who opted out, you know, ended up going back to college and playing again. Uh, You know, others, you know, weren't taken seriously. Uh, You know, there's, there's, there's more players, particularly the small school players who didn't come out that are going to be available. And I would think the Ravens are in a good position to take advantage of that, but they really need to hold on to the draft capital if they're going to. Uh, and I think, honestly, they're more likely to be trading down than trading up in this next draft. I know that's going to disappoint a lot of people. Yeah, I know, I know people want to swing for the fences with those draft picks, but it's I think it's a lot more rewarding if you can hit on two or three or four or five guys like in the 2018 class like the Ravens did that year. Yeah. All right, let's see if we have another question we can pull out of the mailbag here. Okay, Mr. Ed says, five active linebackers may not be sustainable. If you were in charge of the roster, which linebacker would be inactive for week nine? Which player would be subsequently activated? Um, I don't know what he means about the subsequently activated, so I'm going to try and answer the first question. I think at this point, based on the number of snaps he played, and it was not a lot, Harrison played as the weak side linebacker, kind of out of position for that game as it was. Harrison played 11 snaps that were non-penalty snaps. I, I, that might, he might have played 12 or 13 snaps based on the game book because I don't count some of those snaps, but 11 meaningful snaps he played. Um, I don't think you can keep a guy on the team for just that. I think Welch, the, the, uh, as a core special teamer and one of the Ravens' best special teamers, I think it's more defensible to keep him than to keep Harrison for those few snaps a game. You're rotating him in for Queen. So I think right now he'd be the guy that would have to be left out. Yeah, it, to, to me, it's between Harrison and Welch. But, you know, I think that with Welch being very important on special teams, you know, I, I know people probably won't want to hear it, but I think Harrison is the odd man out at this point. Now, I wouldn't be shocked if the Ravens say, hey, we don't want to have four inside line or five inside linebackers activated and they decide to drop Welch because they want to trust Harrison in a special teams role. But I think Welch has more familiarity, and that's like literally what he is on the roster to do at this point. He's only played one defensive snap the entire season. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, you're not deactivating board. You know, he plays too important of a role. Same thing with Bynes, same thing with Queen. So it comes down to those two. And it's a matter of if the Ravens would want to kind of double down on Harrison as a defensive and special teams guy, or just say, hey, we're going with the core special team in Welch. Right. They they actually, in, in this last game, it's interesting, they were playing Harrison on four snaps as an outside linebacker. So they, they only had one outside linebacker on the field, but Harrison was lined up on the edge of the line of scrimmage on the opposite side. So, you know, positionless play, you can call it, but it's really, a, he's playing an outside linebacker role. They're playing a jumbo nickel package, which means they have three defensive linemen, still a nickel, which means they have to divide up their inside and outside linebackers to total three. And they had a couple of plays. They had two outside linebackers and one inside linebacker. And a couple of plays, they had one inside linebacker and two out. Uh, sorry, other way around. And and they and really what it was was Harrison was taking an outside linebacker role when they chose to have two inside linebackers on the field for that. So uh, it's not like he doesn't do anything that's a little bit you know useful and versatile. It's just that he's the least used of the uh, linebackers. So that's where that's where I have the problem. Yeah, I, I don't think deactivating one like says that I think they're terrible. I don't think that at all. But, you know, it's just a matter of where they need personnel right now. They need they need defensive linemen. They need offensive linemen. They need secondary guys. And, and I think that when taking all that into account and you're not using a guy like Walter Harrison on the field as much as you're using Queen Bynes and Board at this point, I think that deactivating one of those two guys and, and opening up another spot for another player who can impact the offense or the defense when in more snaps, I think is more important. All right. That certainly makes sense. Kevin, always a pleasure to talk football with you. Really happy. You could come on the air. Please tell people where they can talk football with you and where they can read your stuff. Yeah, Ken, it's, it's always a pleasure to come on here and talk football with you. I host and produce the Locked on Ravens podcast. We do that five days a week, both audio and video form. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on YouTube in video form. I also am the managing editor over at Ravens Wire, so I write about this team seven days a week, all the, all the news, analysis, updates on that. You can find me on Twitter at KOstriker34 and for the Locked on Ravens show account 
it's just that Lockdown Ravens. All right. Outstanding. Folks, we're still continuing on our 25 years series uh, of looking back at the history of the Ravens and really enjoying it in a lot of ways, talking through some of our frustrations, our love of certain players, the things we've loved about trends on defense and the draft, what they've looked for. All sorts of different topics. People have been wonderful in coming up with interesting little niches of Ravens history to talk about. Uh, I'm looking for other people who will do it. We still are recording maybe another 20 of these so far this season, so there's still time to get in. Um, and please uh, hit me up with a DM on Twitter if you have a narrow idea we can focus on for about 20 minutes and talk about in some depth. I love those kind of things, and I uh, would love to hear from you. Uh, Kevin, thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much, Ken. It was a blast. And we'll talk to you next time on Film Study. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.